is correct. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. I'm Bill Coffin, and today we'll be discussing something that has always been with us, but in recent years has taken on a life of its own, delivering countless hours of fun and fellowship in too many different forms to count. This episode, we're talking about board games. From simple rainy day diversions to marathon strategic immersions and everything in between, board games have been engaging, challenging, entertaining, and delighting people really since the dawn of civilization. There have been ancient classics that endure to this very day, like backgammon, chess, and go. There are modern marvels that are taking gaming tables by storm, like Wingspan, Agricola, and Catan. And then there are those games, really too many to count, that have risen to popularity and fallen into the forgotten corners of gaming history, no less loved by those who played them at the time. Board games weren't much of a thing in the United States until after the Civil War, and even then, a lot of them were simple roll-and-move games, like games we might see today in the store, such as Monopoly, Sorry, Candyland, Snakes and Ladders, Trouble, Mousetrap, and The Game of Life. For a long time, in the U.S. anyway, that was all one could really expect from a modern board game. But that all changed in the late 1990s, when a wave of high-end board games came out of Germany and revolutionized players' experiences and expectations. At the same time, the internet provided the perfect place for games to spread by word of mouth and for enthusiasts to order them no matter where they lived. Suddenly, even a small niche game could find a worldwide audience. By the turn of the millennium, as American and European game designers took inspiration from each other, board games in general took a huge leap forward in quality, depth, sophistication, and popularity. Since the year 2000, the global board game market has experienced at least 9 to 10% annual growth per year. And in certain national markets like the U.S., it's been more like 20 or 30%. Today, board games are a $13 billion industry. And none of this shows any signs of slowing down soon. Although the COVID-19 pandemic was no friend to the burgeoning board game cafe business, which opened many thousands of retail locations in recent years, board games themselves have become even more popular as a way for folks in quarantine to entertain themselves, connect, and dive into a world somewhat less troublesome than the one waiting right outside their door. There's no denying that we are in the midst of a board game renaissance, if not a golden age. The old classics still have a favored spot in game libraries everywhere, just as increasingly high-quality products are continuing to drive social, tactile, and compelling experiences that speak to something deep within us all, that distinctly human drive to gather around and play. So let's get started. With me today is Spice Guild navigator Chris Crenshaw. Howdy, folks. Emperor of the Felix Legions, Tom Hespos. Glad to be here. Thanks, Bill. <laughs> and pineapple pugilist, Joe Pace. Roll again. What do you mean roll again? <laughs> Everyone welcome. Tom, I think we're going to start off with you. Give a really quick description as to what it is, how you play it, and most importantly, what it is you get out of it that really sticks with you today. You know, the guy who was my first dungeon master, this guy, Eric Meisner, his bedroom in his house was like a library. And it was just, you know, wall-to-wall bookshelves everywhere you could see. Yeah. A lot of those bookshelves were filled with books a lot of them were filled with board games. So he was the guy in the neighborhood who had like all the Avalon Hill stuff and all oh. like 
just you know all the way around the room yeah. like wow this is cool like any rainy day we can come over to this guy's yeah. house and we'll find something to do eric introduced the guys on the block to this game called conquest of the empire which was kind of risk-like in its execution where it had some just really cool other mechanics to it that i, I really loved and i it made it so replayable that we like to play it a lot you got provinces and stuff that you have to control you know much like so risk. it's conquest of the empire basically like a roman empire like take over the it's empire a roman empire game. game you have all these different factions competing to take over the roman empire as it's you know showing weakness yeah uh, but yeah it, it's it's a very risk-like game and rather than these cards you know that you trade in for armies and stuff like that you, you end up with uh you know talents the currency of the day that you can then use to you know buy more armies buy more this or that or whatever right. you need in order to support your uh play for the throne of the emperor and, you know, a couple of the mechanics that it had that just I, I thought were really, really cool were, you know, you could have armies pretty much anywhere on the board that you wanted, but you couldn't move them unless you used a general piece or a Caesar piece. So like these were like key pieces in the game that right. you needed to be able to deploy troops around the board. So like the notion of, you know, you taking armies and just going into the next province, like you couldn't do that. You had to have somebody lead them. Okay. Uh, which gave it this extra cool mechanic because you could lose leaders and you'd lose them permanently. If you lost your Caesar, you lost the game. That was it. But if you lost generals, all of a sudden you don't have the ability to move armies around the board quite as quickly as you might otherwise. So uh, that became like a really That's interesting cool. mechanic in the game. Yeah. The other thing that I really, really loved because this could just change the game on a dime, mm -hmm. it had this inflation mechanism. So like, you know, as you were building your empire and taking provinces that moved up like the amount of tribute you would get per round. So that would control the number of talents that you got to spend on other stuff. Mm -hmm. There were these two break points in that, that represented inflation. So like once one player got a certain amount of tribute all of a sudden, everything in the game costs double. And then you broke oh, no. another plane and it costs triple. So like you could be planning <laughs> and this would happen all the time. <laughs> and this is what it starts to you know remind me of, of other games where like, yeah. I've got this big invasion planned as soon as it gets to my turn and I get to spend my money. But then somebody hits inflation and you're like, do do do. Nope, I wasn't planning a big invasion. Nope, not me. <laughs> 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 it was a campaign rally. You wouldn't be able to raise the armies in order to be able to do it. Yeah. So like, and then, you know, once you hit inflation, you can't go back. So yeah. like, even if you take a big hit, you lose provinces and thus you're not getting as much money too bad stuff still costs triple. So <laughs> You know, it, it adds like that sort of call back to, you know, yeah. as the Roman Empire is falling, here's what's happening to the money. Yeah, yeah. It's such a great game mechanic. That's awesome. Like, it, it turns it into like anything can happen day towards the end of, of the game. Yeah. It, just, it, it makes it so like almost anybody can win. Yeah, you know, even if you weren't doing so well in the beginning, you could come yeah. back and win it. But uh, it, it was a great little game. I, I loved playing it. And it just we, we played it over and over and over yeah. again because it just it never really got boring. Yeah. <laughs> now, little is not a word I would think to apply to it, because if I recall correctly, this is one of those Milton Bradley like Game Master series games, which had these like big boxes, a million pieces that kind of take, you know, I imagine sort of took up the whole dining room table kind of deal. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It was a big board. You know, it's not lost on me that like Eric had all these great Avalon Hill games, like all these things that like cost a lot of money and, and you know, had a lot of pieces to it are very complex. And here we are playing a game by Milton Bradley. <laughs> <laughs> 
pour one out for Avalon Hill, though. They were like one of the great sources of this so fantastic great. great strategy game for so long. I'm going to talk more about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We'll say that. I just much, much love in my heart for Avalon Hill. Holy moly! So, if I recall correctly, Milton Bradley released Axis and Allies and and several similar games at the same time. Yeah, broadsides and, and boarding parties. Axis and Allies. They had Fortress America, and they okay. had one called Shogun which was renamed Samurai Sword. Yeah, we but, played a lot of Shogun. We played Axis and Allies too, but yeah. I, 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 my, my impression was it was somewhere in between Axis and Allies and Risk. Kind of, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'd agree with that. We, we played some of the others and they were very similar. Like we actually had a, a great story playing Shogun one time. So like the currency in that was Koku, which is, you know, the amount of rice you need to feed like yeah. one citizen for a year. Yeah, That's yeah. how they, you know, measured the game currency and everything. Well, like, you know, Eric would be the, the bank, you know, in charge of like giving people whatever currency they were going to require for their round. And like, you know, halfway into the game discovers that my friend John had been going behind his back and stealing all the Koku and nobody was keeping track. So <laughs> raise armies, raise, you know, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. This economy is uh, yeah, a sham. He's basically done the whole, you know, like, you know, monopoly, dishonest banker thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you gotta, you have to love these games like what you're talking about where there's a um a geographic component like I, yeah. honestly so much of my knowledge of the world oh, yeah. and geography stems from like axis and allies games like conquest games like risk where i'm like yeah. i still refer to most of eastern russia as kamchatka exactly where the kamchatka peninsula is thanks to risk yeah. Yeah. exactly and you're like, like, oh, of course Irkutsk. oh yeah absolutely <laughs> That's Irkutsk SSR. Yes, I know exactly where that is. I, I, I'm also of the mind that Congo is the strategic linchpin to all of Africa. <laughs> like it's just based on based, no Congo, on, right? based on risk. It's like it can I, attack I, everything. It can attack everything. <laughs> you can't take Africa without taking Congo. It's, everybody knows this. Yeah. But like as as an entire generation, our understanding of world geography yeah. is frozen. In 1988, based on what Avalon Hill and Milton Bradley told us it was. That is not incorrect. <laughs> I completely wholeheartedly agree. That's awesome. And that's okay. Yeah, it's okay. It's, it's still okay. So, you know, I never got to play Conquest of the Empire, and I never got to play any of those Game Master Series games, but they looked super cool, and they looked really just, like, oh. I remember, like, broadsides and boarding parties had this huge pirate ship as a game board and all these figures, and it was like, it was like wargaming light, you know, for people who didn't want to yeah. actually get into honest-to-God wargaming. But they just look super cool. And it's funny because I always heard that like, oh, they're good, but they're so involved and they take a whole day long. And I'm thinking, dude, I play D&D. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I guarantee I've got all that. I've done all that. I guarantee you it's not going to run longer than D&D session. I guarantee you it's not anymore. I've got 400 pages of manuals to go through. It's it's okay. I'm sure. Well, I, you, know. you have a rainy day. Like you're not going back outside to play, you know, wiffle yeah. ball anytime oh, soon. Not? Like right? it better take three hours or five hours or whatever. Yeah, sure. To keep busy. <laughs> I don't know, man. I remember trying to get my uncle to play uh, Axis and Allies with me. How long is it going to take? Four to eight hours. <laughs> and that's just to set it up. I've heard it. He just I looked at me like, yeah, that's just to put the tanks in <laughs> Moscow. Yeah, I've heard I've heard it said of Axis and Allies that it actually takes as long as World War II took to play the game. <laughs> much literally, literally just to set it up and then somebody bangs into the table and you're back to it's like one. why why'd you do that yeah <laughs> so anyway very cool very cool all right we're gonna move on and i think we're gonna move on to uh joe to your moment of truth now i know 
the game you're talking about is kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum from big strategic, you know, fracases that Tom was talking about. Why don't you walk us through the game you picked, especially walk us through how you play it. And then you can tell me a little bit about what really sticks out to you from this game and why it still uh, occupies some space in your heart now. Let me take you away from the world of strategy and conscious thought and back to the early 80s when I was a young lad and my older brother and my two cousins, the four of us would hang out and we'd play board games. One of the games that we had was called Hawaiian Punch. And for those who don't or have never been exposed to Hawaiian Punch, it's a juice, <laughs> mass market juice. But there was a game. Hawaiian Punch. A juice drink. <laughs> juice drink yes a juice drink there's no juice <laughs> no there's no there's no there's no juice or nutritional value so it was the color but of juice you, it was it was red or purple if i recall and maybe pink and so there was a board game in the beautifully cross-marketed 80s there was a board game associated with hawaiian punch i think it's actually a 1978 board game but we played this thing in the early to mid mid 80s you would have play-doh and you would make a pineapple out of your color. You might be blue, you might be orange, you might be red. You would mold your pineapple. And then you would roll the dice and you would move along. It was like Candyland. You'd move along through the squares. And if you landed on an opposing player's color, each of you would have a plastic molded punchy, which was the Hawaiian punch character. I don't know if there was an ethnicity involved or what, but this guy who was a party animal who loved Hawaiian punch in his Hawaiian shirt. Anyway, you would have one of these things. And if somebody's pineapple landed on your color square, you had the opportunity to mash their pineapple. With your big plastic punchy figure, right? Yes. You would use your big plastic punchy and you would bring it down with enthusiasm on the pineapple that had landed in your space. Think about Monopoly when somebody, you know, lands on a property you own and they have to pay you rent. Well, this was paying the rent with, you know, a little extra. If your pineapple then was too big to fit in the square and you landed on a square that said size check, you had to move back. So there was not a lot of complexity to this game. There was not a lot of strategy. It was roll the dice and hope to hell you didn't land on your aggressive cousin's color. <laughs> and I, I've watched people do these playthrough videos where they gently kind of calmly like rest punchy and mash it <laughs> quietly down it's like a bronte novel the way that they will move this thing <laughs> it's like a, that it, was not how it, we like played a, like a french game. press with coffee just totally yeah no that was not how we played the this flavor game. we played this game guys coming off the turnstile guys were coming off the corner like it was wwe <laughs> like it was literally like oh you landed on blue you're all done now sucker and people would take a running start and come from six feet in the air and bring their punchy down and the board would break and you know, people would get in the way. You'd try to stop guys. It would always devolve into fisticuffs. It would always devolve into arguments. It would always devolve into pieces of Play-Doh flying everywhere. I don't think we ever finished one. I don't think anybody ever won. It was like nuclear war. There were no winners, only survivors and not even that. I like how you dare to use, I like how you dare to use the word fisticuffs to describe a Hawaiian punch inspired brawl. It's a brawl, call it a brawl, man. It was a Donnybrook. A Donnybrook, it was, yes. It was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was a melee. Tarps off, boys. so when you told me about this game i started laughing because i'm like why would anybody create this game like you explained it to me like yeah it's a hawaiian punch game you go around and you smash each other's pieces with a big punchy i'm like hawaiian punch was a drink brand the whole 
marketing thing was Punchy would walk up to this big dope in the in the cartoons and as like, hey, you want a Hawaiian, you want a Hawaiian punch? Okay, and he'd punch him right, and he'd sock him. And like, no American boy growing up in that time could could answer yes to you want a Hawaiian punch and not get socked in the arm, right? Like it was just this like free. Well, there'd be a cup check involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was absolutely. a free license to start a fight. So it's like, <laughs> it's like I'm like, why would you why would you ritualize this further? <laughs> Either my mother or my cousin's mother, my aunt, would say. You guys should stop fighting. Why don't you play a board game? And this is what we would do. We'd go down and we play a board game that would only Fine. lead into more violence. I, I'm <laughs> nearly sure that this game was primarily marketed through comic books. You, you would cut out UPC labels yeah. from yeah. from these things and, and send it in for the game. That, no, that who sent yeah. away for it in your family? Come on, fess up. <laughs> Probably would have been my older brother because everything that was good and terrible came through my older brother when I was a kid. Did he ever question, like, what is with the Hawaiian punches? He's got like these red things coming out of the top of his head. They Reds, look like antlers. I'm pretty sure those are. Dressed. It looks. It looks to me like a weird, bizarre, like animated version of like like a like a straw hat. Like like a straw hat. Yeah, like it's supposed to be a straw hat, but Maybe. but it's it's involving that weird, super chunky, minimalist kind of design yeah. you saw in cartoons like the '60s. You know, so it's like it just looked. It just looked like a salad bowl of asterisks on his head. Like I don't know what the hell that is, but it you know. In, in all honesty, we didn't think about it beyond the fact that it was an opportunity to fly at each other with a like a weapon. It's magic. And that, the that no was adult was like kind of present in the house. He says, you know what? Like this might not be the <laughs> best be. board game for the kids. Like they're really just using this as Adults. an excuse to beat the crap out of one Adults. Adults. <laughs> I, I watched really? a, I watched a, a playthrough of this and and yeah. Joe I completely see where you're coming from. How else could this game end? Because <laughs> it's just infuriating to even watch. Like you, know, you can't you have no effect on the outcome whatsoever. <laughs> All you get to do is release a little aggression on some play-doh. And 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 I can assure you that if I had played this game. Smash every every single smash by Punchy of Plato would have it would have been like a grenade. I mean, there would have been fragments on the walls, and my mom would have been yelling at me later. You gotta remember too, this is the late seventies. You know, you're picking that stuff out of shag carpet, right? No, yeah, yeah. mom's gonna kill you. You The thing is, if she can see it in the multicolored shag carpet, yeah, right. (laughs) Here's the thing: is that there was there's a there's a cost benefit. The harder you try to hit it, the less likelihood you have of accuracy. So if you're gonna try to come at this thing hard, you may not get it square. You may clip it. Okay, you may miss it entirely. So there's a trade-off yeah. between you still destroy the board. And access. Yeah. yeah, but hammer trick, you know. Like I, I had two brothers, and we're all super close. So I, I totally get the energy going on in the Pace household. And I can tell you right now, the fraternal gloating that would have happened if you just wind up and like you're going like bring this thing down from the top turnbuckle <laughs> and you miss and katoom, nothing. The mockery would have been savage. Like guys would lo- listen, like Tommy, buddy. My brother Al and I, somebody would wind up and they would come from across the room. And you know what would happen is they'd get tackled. They'd never even finish it. Like, you're like, you're not going to get my guy. And like, you're not going to get my pineapple. And there'd be a tackle. There'd be rolling on the ground. This was all secondary to the opportunity to beat up on your cousins and your brother and whatever else. And so this was all proxy for juvenile, masculine, you know, emergent testosterone. And 
I God, I love it and I miss it. <laughs> All I know is that I've been giggling over this board game since you mentioned it, Joe. I never knew this existed. I saw it. I'm like, this is this is of all the bad ideas in the history of toy marketing. This is the most glorious. I mean, it's just. And and I will say this: my my oldest cousin just turned fifty last year, and there was a long conversation, about three to four months long, between all of us about whether we should go on eBay and spend the hundred and twenty bucks to get a vintage version of this that we could play it for his fiftieth. Yeah. That would have been, yeah, that's, that's some things are worth the, they're worth the money and the violence. So yeah, for sure. We're going to move on to the next one real quick. We're going to jump to, to Chris. Now, Chris, your game involves treachery and violence of a different kind. So why don't you talk us through the game you, you chose, uh, give us a quick rundown in, in terms of like, what kind of game is it? How do you play it? And then let everybody know what it is about this game that really is so special to you. I, I stumbled into a hobby store that had Avalon Hill games at around 11 or 12 years old. It was just like, you know, fireworks in my head. Next thing I knew, I was trying to play uh, Panzer Leader and a succession of, of Avalon Hill strategy games. But uh, eventually I read Dune and then got a hold of the 1979 board game of the same name. And it's a strategy game, a war game, a diplomacy game that is not exactly about any of those things you're trying to you're taking the the role of one of the factions from the book dune by frank herbert you could be the atreides the harkonnens the the emperor the fremen the guild or uh the bene Gesserit. every individual faction has a, a really asymmetric set of abilities the fremen don't have to ship their soldiers down to the planet. They can put however many soldiers out they want at a time, you know, within a certain area. The guild get paid every time someone ships forces down to the planet. The emperor gets paid every time someone buys a treachery card. Uh, The Harkonnens get extra treachery cards whenever they buy one and can keep twice as many as everybody else. The whole game revolves around this complex combat system that involves a a wheel you ship forces into your opponent's area and you can dial up to the number of forces you have plus the value of the leader that you play and then you play a, a weapon card and a defense card and you might kill your opponent's leader your leader might be killed you add up the value and then see who wins it 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 is the most complicated intense <laughs> uh stressful combat ever I, it's a terrible system i hate it but <laughs> but it's so dramatic and it, it requires so much of you that like you're second guessing yourself all the time yeah and 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 that's what the nature of the game is you're constantly second guessing yourself because you know is this guy i'm allied with about to betray me it's just a really 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 neat game that had a big effect on game design going forward this came out in 1979 and and that wave of games in the 90s i don't think would have happened without games like dune yeah for sure Um, you know, this was not simply squad level combat in World War II or, or on on sailing ship in the the Napoleonic Wars. It, it was it was something entirely different. It was it was it's a game that's economic and political and military and a little bit magical. You get out of it what you put in. It's, I've never seen a board game quite like it, until of course 
somebody who didn't have the Dune license built Twilight Imperium, Dune's spiritual successor. And and now you know you can you can buy that game for one hundred and fifty dollars. Uh, and have what looks to be a fantastic time. I've never played it, but it looks awesome. Do you have a particular experience playing Dune that really stands out as, as like when the game all kind of came together for you? When I was a kid, I, I had it and, and, and I played it a couple times, but but not well. You know, I, I would have, you know, two or three friends over. Yeah. You need a larger group. I have played it with as many as five players via tabletop simulator on uh, Steam. My, my record's pretty good, gotta say. <laughs> But <laughs> I, I am pretty awesome if I do say so myself. I'm, but all, you, all I can think of, Chris, is the Woody Allen movie Sleepers, where you know we should have had sex, but there weren't enough people. There weren't enough people. <laughs> that is my moment of truth with this game, Bill. I need to play it with six players. I never have because yeah. only when you play it with six players can someone uh, be the Benny Gesserit. It's like the most different faction. Mm-hmm. Their abilities just kind of break the game in weird ways without making them too powerful. It's it's cool. I, I've read that one of their powers is that because because in, in Dune, the Bene Gesserit, they're kind of like this whole society of kind of like female, almost like sorcerers, like like Jedi Knights, but without but but like without lightsabers. But they're yes. like much yeah, much, that, that's much, close they, enough. Yeah, they've got like sonic monks. powers and all that. Monks. Lady monks. I guess in the game, if they can see who's going to win the game, they in fact win the game. Right. Yeah, they can make a <laughs> prediction at the beginning of the game. And so and if, they, if it's right, they win. Like, God, oh, pretty Jesuit, man. You're so smart. <laughs> you know, it's just like, like what a great game mechanic that is. Oh, it's, it's bonkers. Yeah. All of the things in this game, they're, yeah. they're competing with each other and they, they, yeah. they rub up against each other. The rules are just like sort of grindy and yeah. aggressive against each other. And it, it, this, like, that's where magic happens. You know, one of the neat things about Dune is that my understanding is that it went out of print couple years after it was produced and never really came back into print for a long time so for a while this game was kind of like a holy grail for game collectors like if you could get your hands on a copy of dune like they used to go for a lot of money i remember Um, looking uh years ago for one and and uh, it was well over 100 bucks on ebay i'm thinking back to that time i mean you're talking some revolutionary game mechanics and like the layering of game mechanics and and making a player's attention drawn in four or five different ways at once that that's a sort of gameplay that you just didn't see a lot because because not like a war game you got to like micromanage all your different units this is like you've right. got to keep it you have to keep thinking of kind of competing priorities in your own head of where are my units going where's my money coming from what is joe going to do to me you know all those kinds of things and i do think that it had a strong effect on the the euro gamer <laughs> designers so many euro games are about building systems mm-hmm. i don't know if yeah. you it, maybe you've played uh, terraforming mars that that's a game where basically everybody that's around the table is playing a different game everybody's playing their own yeah. game and and they they only affect each other in sort of minor ways yeah, you can't put your head down in your own busy work and yeah kind of forget that everybody else is there well like how is the it seems like everybody's got their each faction kind of has their own superpower or you know different mechanic that's different from all the other factions in the game like if you play with fewer players how does that affect the balance of it because it seems like it could just get really bonkers you you sort of start with atreides harkonnen's emperor and then you know maybe then you add the fremen Oh, so it goes uh, yeah. in a certain order. Yeah, like, okay. Okay. yeah you know, like it, it, yeah. the way the way they work together, you know, it, it all sort of self amplifies. That's or, really really or, good or, design, though, that, that they're able to calibrate the game 
according to you know part partial play you know so like the Benny Jesuit which are the weirdest come in last that said it's it's not that fun with three players yeah. and pointless with two the game I'm picking uh, is Carcassonne, which is kind of one of the one of the, the standard bearers of the whole Euro game, you know, movement. It's a favored game of mine in Provincetown, Mass. It's a great game shop called Puzzle Me This, and we would go there, and they would have this massive selection of really cool, high end, funky board games. So they're like kind of on the whole like Euro game trend coming to America like well in advance. So we're like, what are all these cool games? We got Carcassonne then, and we started you know playing with it, and we're like, this is just the coolest game. It's so different. It's a tile laying game. Everybody's taking turns pulling a random tile out of a bag. Each tile will have on it a little painting of like a road segment or a segment of a town or something like that. You know, you are laying down the tiles in ways that connect to other tiles. So you build entire little towns or entire little roads. And that's how you get your score, right? And as you keep building and building, everybody else is building and building. And eventually your things kind of conflict with each other and you're cutting each other off and you're building the areas in between towns or farms and you, you, you claim those. And so there's a, there's a constant competing, but it's not conflicting. You're trying to, and this is a big part of the whole Eurogame mentality, I think, which is that they're usually not about conflict you're trying to thwart the other player, but you're not trying to directly go after them and destroy their progress. You're just trying to do your thing better than they are. And I think that's kind of an interesting take. It's so far away from a lot of American games, which are usually very conflict driven, right? We still play it today and there's a million expansions for it. We don't have all of them, but this is sort of like the perfect Euro game. Came out of Germany, designed by the legendary Klaus Jürgen Riedi, I guess is his name. It's got this incentive for social play, no players get eliminated from the game. Everybody plays till it's over. There's a fixed winning condition. So the play time is relatively, you know, the same time every time you play it, which is cool. There's not a huge amount of randomness in the game. Like you, you pull the random tile, but then that's it. Otherwise, everything is in your control. There's not a lot of like, oh, capricious fate totally screwed me over. You, you don't have that. The complexity of the game is kind of like moderate. Like there's a depth to it you wouldn't see in games like Risk or Clue or that sort of thing. But it's not quite as heavy as, say, you know, Conquest of the Empire or something like that. It's 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 kind of enough to get you thinking, but not so much you had you kind of drown in the detail. And it's always got kind of like a narrative theme. You know, you, somebody had mentioned Steam before. Is that a lot of board games have made the transition to the digital platform really, really, really well? And it's kind of ironic because. I think a lot of what drives the the enduring love for board games, especially nowadays, is that it's something pe that people can do in person. There's something you can actually pick up the pieces and hold them, that sort of thing. But all that aside, some of these games do really well as electronic versions as well. And and oh, Carcassonne, yeah. there's a version of it on iOS. I think it's on Android. It's oh, yeah, it is. Oh, man. <laughs> and Chris, right? It is it, it is perfect. It's a, it's a perfect, it's a great, it is, great little game. It's a great game. Oh, my gosh. You can play it with other people across the internet, or you can play it, you know, with Dumb as Bricks AI, whatever. It's a super fun game. And it's, it's one of those games where I don't win at it often, but I just love playing it just because it's so much fun to, like, lay down and, oh, I finished the city. I feel such accomplishment, even though I'm going to lose. Like, it's still that, that yeah. thing. And yeah, I, I just, that's I just what love I love it. about this game. Exactly, Bill. Like, yeah. like you can play it with a, a, a nine-year-old and they'll yeah. even if they don't win they'll exit happy yeah yeah you know because exactly. they built something it's it's cool and it's it's super cool there are little mechanics in the game where you can directly go after each other's thing like you put a meeple in a town and you're building your town and i'm building my town towards tom's town tom's gonna meeple in his town well if the two of us connect our towns at the end of the game we each get the full score for the town right but if my point is really to beat tom then we basically cancel each other out, right? 
So often you'll do things where you're like, well, along the way, I'm going to put another meeple in my town. So when we connect, I've got two meeples. So Tom gets nothing out of his town. I get everything. Ha ha ha. You can do that. But honestly, at my table, we're always like, that's kind of like against the spirit of the game. <laughs> like, I know, I know it's kind of like a care bear way to approach it, but it's considered in the coffin household pretty much like knives out. If you're gonna steal, if you're gonna steal a city, okay, but then it's gonna get rough and nobody ever does it because nobody wants to be the first person to draw blood in Carcassonne. <laughs> it's too hard to do for somebody else to get revenge within the same game, though, Bill. Your well, family needs to understand this. <laughs> here's the thing about my family is that here, here's the here's the deal is that my family never wins at Carcassonne because my wife always wins at Carcassonne because she is a municipal land use planner by trade. She plays Carcassonne for real out in the world. Okay, so I'm not going to beat her. She knows where to put a farm and, and make sure it touches 45 towns. I don't know where the hell they're going to go. I'm just like, derp, I want to make a road that goes into a circle. Look at me. You know, I, I want to make a town in the shape of a square. Hey, so I, I'm I'm going for these. MCAs, FTWs. Yeah, right. I'm going for these little like reptilian dopamine hits every time I finish something. I got four points. Look at me. And, and Allison's like, I'm trying to build Western civilization here. Okay. I'm trying to get the water running again. And so usually she outscores me by a vast amount. So. Part this field it, touches 14 cities. Yeah, exactly. Do you understand like, that? <laughs> it's pretty much. I'm playing yeah. 14 cities. Yeah. And, and so part of it for me is just the fear of like, if I cross her, she'll just grind me to dust. Like she's already kicking the crap out of me playing it straight and kindly. If I decide to become the aggressor, well, then she has no reason to hold back. Then she'll just annihilate me. So. I'm like, you know what? Maybe I'll just play it cool and just be happy with my 50 or 75 points and I'll just walk away, you know, a happy man. And that's okay. I still had to go. Sometimes I still it's time. better to lose. It's, it's not like, honestly, I'm not in a place where I'm like, oh, if I play differently, I'd win. I would still lose. Okay. It's can I lose happy? Can I lose sad? I, I choose to lose happy <laughs> and that's okay. And, but I will say, honestly, though, like other Euro games, like we play Puerto Rico quite a lot. We play Catan a fair bit. These are games where, to Chris's point, though, you can lose and still have fun because you enjoyed building what you built in the game. And that's a really tricky thing to do mechanically in, in the game. And I'm always really impressed at how they, they pull these things off. It's kind of interesting how this whole school of thought of games is kind of driven by a desire to not necessarily engage in conflict. For a long time, it was such a non-American way of doing a board game. I found the whole approach to be kind of cool. Does every game have to be Monopoly? You know, does every game have to end with a board flip? No. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> exactly. Um, I know what I, you're saying, though, Bill, about, you know, like a lot of these things going into the electronic realm, going into it, like saying like, oh, I'm going to download, you know, the electronic version of Monopoly or whatever, you know, like, I, I feel a little pang of guilt because it's like, yeah, I'm moving into interactive space as opposed to, you know, a physical board game. But like, we forget so many times what a pain in the neck it is sometimes to keep track of the rules, keep track of the math and stuff like, you know, like a, a game in Monopoly goes so much smoother on an iPad than it does in real oh, life. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> For years, my kids, one of their go to games to play, and this is something this is something they just came onto it on themselves. They would play the game of life on their on their phones or on their iPad. <laughs> you know, I was talking to them today. I'm like, why didn't you guys like? like the game of life so much because as a kid i hated life it was dumb fun it was simple and really like get on each other's nerves and like really screw with each other <laughs> they just love that they just had so much fun playing life and at the end you have to sell your kids <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know the whole point of monopoly, the entire point of monopoly is the conflict right like the entire point yeah of monopoly is you are now exposed to the capitalist model in right, which we yeah. hate each other yeah 
Absolutely. But my dad taught me, like, he was ruthless with teaching me Monopoly. Like, my first exposure to the game was, like, throw you in the deep end. Let's see if you swim, kind of. He was, like, and you know, he beat me mercilessly. And at the end, poor like, dumb had, bastard. Had do it. And it's very simple. He's, like, I buy everything that I land on, even if I have to mortgage properties <laughs> yeah. to do it. And there's a method. It's a very simple method. All about yeah. leverage. He would, you know, yeah. beat his seven-year-old kid and, and not feel guilty <laughs> about it. <laughs> That's how I learned to play Monopoly. I love that so much. I don't know anybody who walked away from Monopoly games with, with, with a gentlemanly handshake and a nod. <laughs> yes, good game. It's like the, the, the same cousins that I played Hawaiian Punch with. We played Monopoly, and my cousin Buddy, I still remember very much, taking all of his money and taking it to bed with him and sleeping with it. And we never found any of that money again. We're like, Bud, <laughs> what happened to all that money? He's like, You, you probably oh, wouldn't want it know. back. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you don't want. You don't want it. <laughs> I think we're, you know, since we're talking about some of the games, we're going to move along to uh, our thunder round. Normally, it'd be lightning round, but today it's going to be. <laughs> Here's the thing about board games: there are so many to talk about that we're just going to kind of go round robin, and because everybody's got the choice that they picked, and they're like, but you know, there's like three or four more I like to talk about. So here we go. We're going to we're going to go around, and everybody just we're going to start talking about the games that we love and and why we love them. So real quick, Joe, back to you. What's what's your first submission for thunder round? I want to talk about Talisman real quick, which, you know, um, was a, a board game that was like a D&D-ish fantasy type board game. And, and the reason that this resonates with me is when I was a kid, my brother and I used to make board games. We used to make these games where you had a, a guy who had to pick up weapons and fight different, different villains and whatever else. You would draw a card and it would say, oh, you found a sword in the swamp or whatever else. And Talisman hit us right where we lived for that kind of gameplay. Yeah. It was the original talisman was fields and hills and whatever else in this big circle. And you went around and you you had craft and you had strength. And so there were all these different characters. You could be a druid or you could be a knight or you could be a gypsy or you could be whatever. And they had lives and craft and strength. And you would go around and you would fight dragons or goblins or whatever else. But it was it was very much that gameplay that we had tried to make ourselves where I drew the crown of Solomon that adds two to my craft. And now yeah. my druid can cast better spells or whatever else. And eventually you wind up with the crown of command and you would, you know, dominate your, your opponent. And when I was in high school and my brother was in college, he came home from college and he brought back this game talisman. And he was like, we got to play this. Oh my God. And we played this thing for 10, 12 hours at a time. We'd play it overnight. We'd play all <laughs> night long and we would, we would play, tournaments where like there were you know 24 characters and we would set up these brackets and we'd play like okay you're the pixie and i'm the troll and who wins and they advance and we would make our own game around the like game like a meta game it. that's and, cool yeah right and and uh, chris i know you've played the the talisman game online through steam and it, and it replicates that board gameplay yeah, you're exactly right um, about what that game is it's you know talisman is like D and D for people that can't get a group to play D and D. Yeah, or people who don't have a pen and paper, right? Yeah. Like it's it's basically like the, to the point where like you roll the die, you move around, and the combat mechanic is so simple. It's okay. I have a strength of eight. Oh, look, it's a dragon who has a strength of eight. We each roll a die. Whoever has a higher die roll wins. But there might be modifiers. Maybe I have a sword. Maybe you know when I fight him in a swamp, he's at a plus one or whatever else. And there's all these modifiers you have to keep in your in your head as you go along. 
And as the game goes along, these modifiers get more and more and more and more complicated. And the coolest part of it is eventually somebody winds up with the crown of command and they roll a die. And if they roll a four, five, or six, you lose a life. And so you wind up what we call the two minute drill where you're running around, you're trying to heal and you're trying to get stuff to get yourself to the crown of command. <laughs> and all of a sudden this game, which can be a little languid, which can kind of take its time, it compresses and every turn matters. And it, it, there's a really cool dynamic that happens. That's awesome. There are a bunch of games like that at the time that weren't D&D, but they were like trying to tap into the phenomenon of D&D, but were like a lot more stripped down and trying to create, like distill D&D into a box set scenario, right? So there were a bunch of, there was like Dark Tower. Dungeon, you know? yeah, that one, uh, yeah. board game. Dark Tower was great though. I love Dark Tower. Here's the thing. Dark Tower was expensive. I never had Dark Tower, but it looked hella cool. So, oh, so Eric had Dark Tower. You know, like honestly, the um the novelty wore off. Like, you know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't understand. Like, you know, oh, like, oh, really? <laughs> oh man, that like brings me no. down. I thought it was like this, like this, like incredible game I can never touch. <laughs> you know, you didn't miss much. Don't feel bad. But uh, I mean, my one of my lightning round games, honestly, like Bill, do you remember when we uh, met up at the Complete Strategist in New York that one I, time? I do. A fine day that was. <laughs> so yeah. All right. So for the listeners, you know, like Bill and I, like pre-pandemic are, you know, when our offices were both in uh, lower Manhattan, we'd occasionally meet up for lunch and just, you know, go out on these like lunchtime adventures. And one time we went to the Complete Strategist, which is a great gaming store in New York. The great uh, gaming store. You know, they, really? they had pr- yeah, they yeah, pretty yeah, much it, every game like I could conceive of. There was this game we played called Kremlin. Which, I remember you asking about Kremlin. Yes. Oh my God. Like this was such a great game. And, uh, you know, I go on eBay. I have like yeah. little eBay searches yeah. saved now. It's hard to get it like in good condition for less than 150 bucks. I will tell you a quick story, by the way. When we were in the complete strategy, you're like, hey, you know, I'm looking for Kremlin. And so there's only like five guys or four guys who work there. And I've actually, back in the old days when I was writing role-playing games for a living, I actually did a book signing at the complete strategist, right? In, in, in their back room. And all these fans came in. And it's kind of hilarious to think about it because the strat is like, it's like a submarine. It's super compressed. Like think of like your average super crowded New York bookstore and then double the congestion. That's the complete strategist, right? But there are people lined up and I was signing books and talking to them and it was really super cool, right? They really know this stuff. And you're like, yeah, I'm looking for Kremlin. And the guy's like, no, we don't have that. But he's looking like, well, damn, here's a guy who did his homework. Like, there's this like g- gleam of respect in his eye. Like, he's asking for your spell yeah. or something. Yeah, it's like he's asking for the orb of dragon kind. Like, wow, man. Like, he's asking for I mean, kind of like, you know, like I know All it right. exists. I don't know where you can find a yeah. copy of that these days, yeah. but like, like if they had a secret room with a dusty copy of Kremlin, he probably would have gone back there and gotten it for you because oh, he was like, yeah, he, he was like. He was like so impressed he even asked for it. Like, wow, man, it's pretty cool. It's this, you know, satirical sort of uh, game like based around Russian politics, which is great. Like the objective to to win the game, your character has to wave at the uh, October uh, parade for the, you know, the Politburo or whatever uh, three times. So like these, these different, this game goes around, you know, you do a round if you're, you know, still in sort of like commander chair at the end, you get to wave at the parade. Yeah. 
and uh there's all these like amazing things you can do yeah. to your, your your fellow players and they're all hysterical like you can have people investigated by the kgb and you know sent to siberia these politicians that the game's based on like yeah. they're all made up but you know they're, they're all like really old so like the older you get in the game the easier it is for you to like fall sick and die before <laughs> It's such a this is, funny little game, but it's got so all this great strategy built into it where, yeah. you know, like you remember every game that you play when you play Kremlin. Yeah. It's just so, it's like you screw one another over, uh -huh. uh, you know, people get sent to Siberia, you know, people get sent to work camps. It's, it's crazy, crazy weird stuff, but uh, it's such a great game and hilarious. I have such a deep affinity for games you can screw each other over uh, and I'll get into it when we get to my Thunder Round pick. But yeah, no, Kremlin sounds like a really awesome game and I oh, I, I wish I could play it. If I can get a copy for a hundred under a hundred bucks, I will, I'm going to pull the trigger on that, but it's not Sweet. looking good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's <laughs> Chris, Thunder Round, go. I am going to offer a game that is halfway between Monopoly and the classic real estate simulation Acquire which was first published by 3M and then eventually by Avalon Hill. Acquire was on the shelf at like every KB or K&K &K toys in the mall when I was a yeah. kid. Yeah. It was, it was one of the first advanced board games I ever saw. And I didn't play it until I was an adult. And I think it's fantastic. But Hotels or Hotel Tycoon, as it was later marketed, it was a board game with a track like Monopoly but as you went along, uh, the players would invest in various hotel chains. And the hotel chains were represented by these three-dimensional structures that you would you know, buy and, and place on the map. This uh, fulfills the Derek Eisenhart rule of, of 3D game uh, board elements you know, being simply superior to other <laughs> yeah, games. Der Derek's a, Derek's, yeah, Derek's a big fan of board games, nothing flat. <laughs> and, and I got to tell you, uh, this game tell it shows me why he's right because it's 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 ultimately monopoly with a little bit more thought mm -hmm. the, the reward is in building that hotel out and oh i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna place the pool in <laughs> it, it was rewarding I've heard that like Acquire's got a serious cult following. Like I love Acquire, love it. Yeah, people just really, really get into it big time. I've never, I've never actually seen a game like in the wild being played, but I just heard like it's one of those like there's just certain people who just they love Acquire, and even though it's been around forever, like nah, man, it's just a great game. There is uh, a version that's available for Android, and surely there is one for iOS. Uh, it's got to be my pick for Thunder Round, and it is, in fact, my favorite board game of all time. But I wanted to lead with something kinder and gentler, and it is Diplomacy, which is <laughs> the sport of champions, the game of kings, uh, a contest of knives. It is so fantastic. So, everybody who knows Diplomacy already turned the podcast off, like, nah, right? Like, they usually have probably a bad, a bad memory or, or a friendship sundered by this game. The diplomacy is like a game of risk, except it's just Europe. Imagine a map of Europe pre-World War I. You've got seven great powers, England, France, Germany, Austria, Hungary, Italy, Russia, Turkey. You really need seven players to play it properly. And there's 34 PowerPoints across the map, which is basically like each major city of Europe is a PowerPoint, okay? And you start off with the country and you control three. You need to control half the PowerPoints on the board so that you win. It is impossible for you to do it by yourself. 
you must create alliances with other players. However, the point is to win all by yourself. So eventually alliances shift, people break promises, they lie to each other, they stab each other in the back, they do all kinds of crazy, you know, underhanded kind of stuff to win. But the thing is, it's like, you can't just go around stabbing everybody constantly because then nobody's going to want to work with you at all, right? But the longer you hang on to an alliance, in most cases, you eventually set yourself up for some sort of inevitable, like a stab or be stabbed kind of thing. If you are a Care Bear son of a like Chris Crenshaw, you play diplomacy games where you hook up with one guy and you just like never break your alliance and you do that whole two-headed win thing, which is just a straight violation of the game forever. And Chris, I'll never forgive you. Well, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of people from that game that will never forgive each other. (laughs) (laughs) Poor, poor Derek was in that game too. We had this great diplomacy game online a couple years ago and diplomacy is another game. It really made, it's a great tabletop game, but it made the transition to online really well. It works really well in a variety of online ways. And in fact, I think the best version of diplomacy is when you're playing it and the people aren't face to face. Yeah. Because between the rounds you have, it's called press and you're actually real-time communicating with each other is going, hey, Chris, you know, you've got this country, I've got this country, Tom's in the way, how about we How about we line up and we'll take on Tom and we'll coordinate this way, this, 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 you know. You have these letter-writing campaigns with each other, but eventually you're like, but what are they saying about me? Like, you don't right. know what, <laughs> right? And so the paranoia is a very real thing in this game. And the second guessing is very, very real. And it really eats away at you. And if you have a game we play by email, the rounds will often last 24, 48 hours, right? Because you got to give everybody a day to get their email out. And that's just enough time for the spiders in your head to start tickling away going, maybe my plan isn't a good plan. Maybe, you know what? I'm going to, yeah, no, wait, no, wait, wait, should I, should I stab him? No, I shouldn't. Maybe I should. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm not, I'm not. And and you just, you're, there's a complete mess by the time the the, the turn actually executes. That's what's so fun. And it's so tense. And the games can last a long, long time by mail, by email or whatever. They can last for like weeks. And it just, the stakes are so high emotionally. It's just fantastic. I love that that game. That particular game, Bill gave me an ulcer. I swear to God. Like I, I, I lost sleep over that game. I was, I was, <laughs> I, I was got... talking about it like in other contexts. Like <laughs> Derek got screwed over in that game. And I swear to God, I have never seen that. I've known that man since I was 15 years old. I have never seen him more upset than when he got screwed in a game of diplomacy. I mean, he was, he doesn't get angry a whole lot. He was angry. He was like, I can't believe I got lied to. Well, this is a game about lying. I know, but I got lied to. It's so stupid. And he was like, it was just the archetypical, like, this is the game that it's I, the unofficial motto of the game is breaking friendship since 1956 or something. <laughs> it's, just, it's, just, it's that kind of thing. That's why, so. you know, you, you're always hearing this, like, oh, this game ruined friendships. Like, I've probably been in like three aborted before they started games of diplomacy and have never played the game because too many people are like, oh, you know, I hear that you can, you know, end a friendship over something <laughs> like that. No, it, it's not it's not entirely oversold. I have seen people really lose their marbles over diplomacy. If you go into the game with the full knowledge that eventually you will probably stab somebody in the back and you yourself will probably be stabbed in the back, it makes the pain a little a little less, right? Um, at least you don't feel so indignant when like, oh, I can't believe my trust was broken. Like trust is a four letter word in this game. And as long as you understand that going in, be a bastard, but be a pragmatic bastard. Like honor has no real place in this game. And I'll tell you some years ago. Yes, it does. No, see that. Shut shut up. (laughs) (laughs) You know, 
some years ago, I actually got a chance to interview Alan Calhammer, the guy who invented the game. And he would tell me these eye-watering stories of just how badly his friends would like just mess with each other during the games. I mean, they would like straight up cheat with each other. And it was like no holds barred. What Chris did in our game was called Care Bearing. And it's, it's honestly... There it is, the third Care Bear reference. <laughs> Well, you know, the wound is still fresh, okay? And it happened a couple of years ago. So it just it's no, just, no, it didn't happen a couple of years. It happened a couple Dude, of this years was ago like this was at, this was at least six years ago. Yeah, okay. Well, the emotional <laughs> the emotional damage still seeps from my side, okay? I just it hasn't fully closed. I'm just telling you right now. I, do I want to play a game that's going to result in a six year grudge? Like, really? <laughs> that's that, that's why it's I love that's so good that's, if that. That's why I love diplomacy, though. It makes me care that deep. <laughs> For what it's worth, Bill, uh, I did betray someone that, in that game. I did it by accident. Swear to God. It actually you, happens you, on diplomacy. You accidentally you screw actually, somebody. Sometimes then you, got, you can't help it. Yeah, or, or you screw up a turn, a, a move, and you're like, oh, my God, I totally didn't mean to make that yeah, happen. Yeah, that's what happened. That's but, probably the most difficult part of the game is, is navigating that conversation. <laughs> my dune wins have also come from care bearing. Hey. I, I believe in collective action. What can I say? I have 35-year-old grudges <laughs> from Hawaiian Punch, so. <laughs> Excellent. Well, like, uh, Thunder Round, uh, round two here. We used to have this game called Ubi. I don't know if anybody knows it or is familiar with it, but it was. I've heard of Ubi, but yeah. I have no idea what it is. Ubi was this game where you have a world map, and it's divided up into um, segments, and they're all hexagons. Each hexagon has a number, and there's hundreds of them across the entire world. And the question would ask you, like, essentially, Ubi, um, D.B. Cooper, you know, uses parachute or Ubi, the White House is, or, you know, and you go, okay, I can figure that out. It's in D.C. And that's, mm. you know, hexagon 362. Or you'd roll a die and it would tell you you have to be general or specific and you have to be specific. It would be 362, but then you'd have to, which sixth of the hexagon is it? And mm. you'd have to get, like, you'd had a reticle, which was this piece of the game board that you would move around and you would move over that hexagon and you would either you know you would be able to determine which sixth of it it is mm -hmm. and it could get really complicated because you'd say like okay i know it's in europe i know it's in germany but where exactly in germany is it is it 362 n is it 362 s is it 362 e and it was really complicated it really tested you if you knew your geography, it would say, you know, like, you'd, okay, I know Nagasaki was over Japan and you'd move your reticle over to Japan and you're like, oh, within Japan, there's four or six or 10 possible places it could be. And you'd move your, you know, your reticle around to try That's to neat. figure out where it is. Yeah. And, it, and it led to a lot of really, um, <laughs> really great arguments. And I, I remember a friend of mine who, um, this is a, a sub moment of truth, if you will, who knew the answer was in Rome and he's over there with his reticle and he's going, ah, I know Rome is in Greece. I just don't know where. <laughs> yes. Yes, yeah, it is. Rome's not in Greece, Aaron. Evil, Sorry, buddy. buddy. If you keep searching, you'll find it. Yeah. And, and so, you know, the, but the best part of this game was that some of the questions had no answer. And if there was no answer, if, in other words, it would ask you a question to which there was no answer, yeah. it would be a red herring. And there oh, were maybe, wow. out of the thousands of questions, there might be 10 red herrings. And you could say, 
I think that's a red herring. And if it was, yeah. you'd be correct. What a fiendish and, complication. I love it. Oh, it was fantastic. And, and I, again, going back to, you know, uh, Conquest of Empire no. or you know, Axis, you learned a ton of geography from it. And if what I love it too is that like, you know, okay, Trivial Pursuit, which is another game that I love and I'll talk about shortly. You could answer a question. Ah, the answer is, you know, Budapest. That's great. Where's Budapest? Show me. <laughs> Show me that you know where it is, yeah. boy. <laughs> it's like, uh, you can't just parrot Budapest on me. <laughs> yeah. uh, Tom, Thunder Round, round two. What do you got for us? Oh, gosh. Uh, I, I mean, I got to throw it out to chess. Uh, you know, I. <laughs> oh, you're high road. You know, like, I would have <laughs> never been a chess player. I, I, you know, I've never read a chess strategy book. I've downloaded plenty of them, but yeah. I, I don't have. Oh, the Kaminsky opening. I have never, you know, read yeah. a chess book. Like my dad taught me to ch play chess, just like he taught me how to play Monopoly. Uh, but like <laughs> the way the way Crom teaches people things. Yeah, Crom laughs at you with your on passant. Falls like, <laughs> but uh, you know, one of the your um, queen's gambit is declined. <laughs> Bishop to rook. Oh no! <laughs> oh slots. Uh, you know, he taught me how to play on, on, you know, we were on a vacation or something one time and, uh, you know, it, it, it led to, you know, a lifelong love for the game. I just never really got any good at it, but yeah, uh, same, but you know, it's a fun and strategic game to play and the, the sets are beautiful and, and I love it. <laughs> it, it. Chess is one of those games. Everybody should learn how to play chess, even if they're not good at it. And, and I think also everybody deserves to have a high end chess set of some kind in their home uh, is a good thing to have around, you know? I will say our editor, Derek, when we were in high school, our whole circle of friends, we used to play chess quite a lot. And I remember Chet, Derek would walk around with this little like travel magnetic set, like, like in his backpack. And he, would just, he would just drop it down. He would just start playing real quick. Derek played this like quick and filthy style of chess. I didn't particularly care for, but he was very fast. And so he was really good at speed chess. I was like, dang, like he could bang out a game with somebody in like five minutes. Like, wow, it's impressive. And we would often gather at lunchtime. Like we had a whole bunch of chess sets in our school. So we would, at lunchtime, we would just gather and just like, it was like a chess club in the middle of the cafeteria. And uh, we started playing this variant called bug house chess. Have you guys ever heard of that? No. Bug house chess is basically doubles tennis for chess, right? You're playing chess with a guy and a guy next to you is playing a chess with a guy, okay? And you and the guy you're sitting next to, you're partners, okay? You're playing simultaneous chess games. Tom, like if you and I were playing Chris and Joe in bug house, right? I'd be playing Chris, you're playing Joe. I'm white, you're black, okay? Every time I capture one of Chris's pieces, it goes bang, I put it down for your next move. You can move a piece or you can take that piece I just took off of Chris and put it on your board, oh, right? Man. And it just becomes this like, because you're playing, you're like, I need pieces, okay. Like your strategy was out the window because now it just becomes this attrition warfare. Just, I just gotta grab pieces to give the Tom so you can like, it was, it was just such a, a crazy, like, it was, it was like, it was like chess on crack cocaine. Like it was just such a, all the elegance, all the strategy, all the mind power that goes into chess is out the window just for pure, like adrenalized <laughs> grab pieces while you can, baby. Like it was, you know, but it was a lot of fun. We, we, we really enjoyed it. Was that so. in high school? When was that? That was, that was in high school. The bug house years were definitely in high school. Yeah. I'm so, reminded and, of, of being in college with my roommate when we went down to the, um, the game room in college at UNH and we pushed two uh, ping pong tables together and we'd play ping pong 
with two tables at the same time where like, oh. you know, you, you, you'd, you'd, you'd hit the ball and then all of a sudden it's way the heck over there and you'd have to dive. It was, it was impressive. Good stuff. I love it. I love it. There's no game, uh, you know, in my experience that is more rewarding to win than chess. It, it must be how a cat feels when it has a mouse. Exactly. <laughs> you know, in front of it, you know, like, like, like while watching that realization there, there really is very little more, delicious in the world of gaming um <laughs> i i have a, a strong memory of my my best chess game ever it was uh when saint lucia my first honeymoon um on one of those you know where like, is saint lucia on a map like outside <laughs> chess boards you know like with the two foot squares and yeah yeah, yeah. you, know, yeah, you yeah. walk out on them and move the pieces yeah. around I, I made a, a queen sacrifice that led to a, a mate in three and watching him as he took it Knowing that it had to be a trap, <laughs> I have screwed you. Gotta and tell you, you man, it was. It <laughs> yeah, was. I, do this. I really don't want to, but I'm gonna do this. It was fun. Like, look at, like, this, <laughs> look at this James Bond villain kind of stuff coming out of Chris, and yet you care about in diplomacy. Oh my god, <laughs> dude! There's nothing better than baiting a trap and watching somebody. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, that is real. that is one of the most satisfying things on God's screen. It, it's like, like the Germans probably have a specific word for that feeling. It's not Schadenfreude. It's I'm something. Sure right? It's something yeah. like it. You know, but they, there's right? a, exactly. But like, I have put the peanut butter on the trap, and you take it. Oh, and I watch you take bait and spreader. <laughs> okay. Well, Chris, Thunder Round. Next, next round. What, what have you got for us? King of Tokyo. That <gasps> oh is, my God, we have King of Tokyo. I love that game. It is so much fun. Uh, it's the oh. simplest, simplest game you can imagine. There, it's not. If you win it, you're not the best at the table. You just. You got lucky, and it's one of those games where everybody has fun. It's yeah. just like this this experience. It's dice driven. Uh, you play a, a kaiju trying to destroy uh, Tokyo, and and all the other kaiju's. More importantly, yeah. <laughs> Who and whoever you know, whoever survives the longest or does the most damage wins. It it's just a fun, fun, fun game. You know, it's for, a delightful game. You know, anybody yeah. can play it at any age. Rampage the board game. Yeah, it's sort of. Yeah, it's like Rampage the board game. You, so you've got one of I think it's up to six different kaiju, and you can pick which one you want. And 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 this is a game where the art is really cool. Like it's just a beautiful yeah. looking game. You're hammering around the city, and you're either grabbing stuff, boosting your powers, beating the crap out of other kaiju, destroying the city. And I forget the win conditions, but like it's not that hard. You can play a couple games in like a, yeah, a it's half. A, a half hour playthrough max. Yeah. Yeah, it's, pretty it's it's just a great little I mean, if you know if you have a board game night it's a great appetizer yeah it's also just great for families kids love it yeah i would say that's that's a really good game to introduce kids to kind of like next level board games that have like a, an element of like multiple strategic fields to have to kind of manage you know because it's it's kind of light like that oh it's like one step deeper than, than yeah. a lot of stuff but, it's, but, it's, but it remains quick and easy yeah I'm going to go with Kill Dr. Lucky. It basically the reverse of Clue, whereas in Clue, Mr. Body has been murdered. Who Let's find out who it was. In Dr. Lucky, it's everybody at the house wants to kill Dr. Lucky. You want to be the one who does it. And so basically, Dr. Lucky is this doddering old man who, who runs around the house in this prescriptive fashion. And you have to do everything it takes to maneuver yourself and Dr. Lucky into a room of the house where nobody else can see you. And then, bam, you put a murder attempt on them, right? 
And the point value of the murder attempt depends on the, the murder you play. And sometimes like certain murder attempts are worth more in certain parts of the house. And then it's up to everybody else to drop a number of failure cards equal to the value of your murder attempt. And it becomes this like this bluffing thing because number of failure cards, the game are finite, right? So people like sometimes don't want to be the one to drop their failure cards and they're stuck with none. The other great thing about it is that there's a mechanism called spite tokens, which is like, if you try to murder Dr. Lucky and you fail, and oftentimes the game is just a series of people trying and failing to kill Dr. Lucky. When you fail, you get a, a poker chip, basically like a big wooden poker chip. And that's a spite token. It's, a, it's like a plus one to the value of your murder attempt, right? So the more, the more you try to attack and fail, the more in general you get better at murder. And so <laughs> these spite tokens are important. But if you're out of failure cards, you can use a spite token as a, as a failure point. So eventually it becomes this murder currency that runs the game. And, <laughs> and it just gets the, it pushes the game to a point where finally there's too much spite token out there. Somebody's going to kill Dr. Lucky. We've been playing it for years and years. And um, oh my gosh, this is just, it's just a hoot. It's a new one to me. Times on your reco too, Bill. It's great. It's a great game. All right. Third and final round, Joe. Well, I mean, I have to throw out their dungeon, which is a, a TSR board game. Yeah, um, which is a D&D inspired, uh, very D&D adjacent game where you are a cleric or a fighter or, uh, or a wizard and you go through the dungeon looking for treasure. And, and, and we played that endlessly when I was a kid. Yeah, just just my brother and I played that over and over and over and over again. I love that game. I, you know, I, there was one like before introducing them to D and I introduced my kids to Dungeon, just to get them, you know, psyched about the whole, uh, you know, fantasy role playing thing, thing. But, you know, with yeah. with yeah. some concrete rules around it that they could understand right off the bat, and they they absolutely loved it. You know, like fighting oh, gelatinous cubes and stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, it's really uh, cool. Of course, you know, it's just a gateway into D and D, which absolutely. <laughs> It served it's absolutely purpose. a gateway drug for D&D. Oh, no absolutely. I'm going to cheat here. And the other thing that I'll throw out there is, is honestly, like I have a, a long running love affair for Trivial Pursuit. And when I was a kid, my brother and my parents and I would play. A, a contender for Moment of Truth for me was when years ago, I might have been 16, and, and we would play it where after you filled up your, your wheel with all the pies, you had to go to the middle. Yeah. And once you yeah. got to the middle, your opponents would draw a card and they would choose what question to ask you. <laughs> they would try to figure out what the hardest one to ask would yeah. be, right? And we asked my mother, what does the announcer say at the beginning of the Indianapolis 500? And she said, gentlemen, start your motors. And we said, no, no, it's gentlemen, start your engines. And you have to be very precise. Yeah. You have to get it exactly right to win the game. My mother the sweetest, sainted, beautiful <laughs> woman in the world did essentially a flip the board. She was like, I you bet guys she damned you straight to hell. To hell. <laughs> yeah, right? She and like, you deserved you it. You guys are the worst. Everywhere. I am never playing this with you again. You can all go screw them. And she walked away. <laughs> my beautiful mother. Like, Lucky guys, I'm going home. <laughs> exactly. She, she, they turned my mother into Cartman. <laughs> and anything that can do that is in the Hall of Fame. That, that's yes, absolutely. It takes a special game to get that. That's so that's so so good. Oh my god! All right, Tom, uh, Thunder Round, final choice. What do you got? Castle Risk, which like if you like Risk, you should try and play this game for just a little bit of variety. Picture instead of you know like capturing all the provinces and stuff like that, you have a castle that you place within one of the provinces. And if you lose it, game over. 
that's one aspect of it the other thing is the cards are completely different so like you're not trying to get three of one type or you know three of the different types in order to trade in and get armies and stuff the cards affect your dice rolls and they do some other cool things too so like you could play a uh, general or a marshal card to get like plus one, you know, on your uh, highest uh, offense roll mm-hmm. or, you know, plus one on your highest defense roll. Yeah. You can play a spy card, which en- enables you to look at somebody else's hand and throw away one of the cards that you, uh, you don't particularly like. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a diplomat card that you could play on somebody and then it's a non-aggression pact for a single round. So like oh, that's cool. plan invasions, like, Oh, you know, like I could jump in on that guy as long as that guy doesn't attack me. Oh, I'll yeah. put a diplomat card on him. And now he can attack me huh. while I, you know, run rough shot over everybody else. On yeah. the board. And it's, it's a fantastic little, you know, game in, in so far as like, you know, if you get a little bit bored with risk and, you know, you played it so many times that it's just played out, like, it's it's a variant that that I, I thought was really cool, and it, you know the the card system just changes the game in, in these yeah. sort of unexpected ways, which is kind of fun. Risk was the originator of the legacy board game trend. I think that's a kind of a big deal. Um, deal. Yeah. yeah, Pandemic Legacy is you know widely you know widely considered the best board game ever. Like, and and that yeah. comes straight out of what Risk did. You know, Milton Bradley took a real a real chance on on a design there that that has gone on to change the world of game design. We could do a whole different episode on legacy games. Now we say legacy games. What do you, I, I, I'm not quite sure what you mean by this. Well, I, when you play uh, uh, Risk Legacy or uh, or Pandemic Legacy or Gloomhaven or Seafall, the choices that people make during the game change the game for future playthroughs oh i get it. okay so you're changing the state of the game with your yeah like it introduces yeah. new rules and introduces new Got conditions okay. being able to turn a, a board game into what amounts to a role-playing game yeah uh campaign is pretty neat that's awesome that's awesome. Actually, you know, Chris, I think I think it's thunder round to you, right? You, you've put me in a bind because I've got like four more games I'd love to discuss. But I, I'm going to bring up uh, Onitama, which is a, a recent game that comes in uh, a box that's sort of four inches by four inches by eight inches. It, it's played on a neoprene mat with 10 plastic figures. It's kind of like chess but it's played with cards. At the beginning of the game, five out of, I don't know, maybe 30 cards are dealt. Each player gets two of them in his hand, and then there's there's one that moves between you. And, and each card has a, a movement that you can make with one of your, your pieces. You know, 10 to 15 minutes to play a round or a game of it. And it's super beginner-friendly, super easy to teach, and it's just a beautiful design. I love it, Sounds love neat. it, love it. It sounds like a game that was published relatively recently, like within the last yeah, 10, yeah, years. Uh, about about uh, twenty fifteen, I would say twenty seventeen. Right. Yeah, cool. Three cheers to all the beautiful, beautiful board games coming out these days. Honestly, they're so so nice to look at. All right, so I'm going to go with uh, Munchkin, and I guess technically I'm going to go with Munchkin Deluxe, which is officially a board game. Munchkin is really a card game, but Munchkin Deluxe makes it a board game. You got a board, so by technicality, I skate through. Under the door, which is in keeping with the spirit of Munchkin itself, frankly, because Munchkin is all about—it's all about blurring bending, lines. Yeah, it's about <laughs> blurring lines and bending and breaking rules. Munchkin is in reference to an old uh, role-playing game slur you would throw against other players who would be just the completely annoying 
uh, rules abusing uh, power gamer who just all they wanted to do is make their character the most powerful character, you know, bar none, kind of a, a real twerp about it, right? You're trying to build the biggest munchkin as you're as you're all going through like 10 levels of this dungeon and you got to be the first one to get to level 10 and, and walk out, right? The whole thing is very, very tongue-in-cheek. It's very comical. It's definitely taking the mickey out of D&D in general. And as a lover of role-playing games, I have to say, I have been that guy. I have seen that guy. I get where it's coming from. It's a game where you know, you're trying to completely build these ludicrous stacks of bonuses on your character that is just absolutely bonkers. And the kind of general rules, like, if it doesn't specifically say you can't do it, then you can, right? Because that's the, that's the spirit of Munchkin. You're just trying to abuse the rules and get away with things as best you can. It's really easy to get into, and you don't have to be a D&D player to get it. Like, uh, we've introduced it to a lot of people who don't play D&D, and they get the notion right off the bat, and it's just funny and goofy, and it's just a terrific, a terrific game you can play a couple times in the course of an hour. It's pretty fast, and um, it's, just a lot of, it's just a lot of fun for kids, a lot of fun for adults. It's just, a, it's just a really, really great, enduring game. I really quite like it. I know I said that was the last round. However, one more time, just because we're all here and we're having fun. So Joe is up next. Joe, go. Oh, man. Uh, I, I would mention Dinosaur Island, which was a game that my brother and I used to play back in the you know, early 80s. And you were moving around this island that was volcanic and was about to go under the waves. And you were a photojournalist and you were trying to catch photographic evidence of dinosaurs who lived on this island before it went under the water. You would hit a, a hot spot and you'd flip over the card and it would just be the tail of a T-Rex and it would only be worth like, you know, one or two points. You'd be like, oh, I just missed it. Or, or you'd flip it and it would be like, here's the T-Rex right in your face. It's worth 10. You know, it was great. It was a really fairly simple interface, but we yeah. must have played that game 800,000 times when we were kids. I've never heard of Dinosaur Island, but it actually sounds like a lot of fun. Tom, you're up next. What have you got? Car Wars qualify? I think it does. I think it does. Go for it, man. Yeah, Car Wars. I love Car not, not a true, not a true war game, really. It's more of an RPG, but you know, like the the little you know portable set that you could you know flip out. Like uh, I love you know, that little person. that little plastic set, man. Love it, man. I got it up on the shelf right here. It would spend all this time like trying to develop you know a car that uh, would do battle with other cars on the, in this in this yeah. map, and then fifteen minutes later the game was over like we'd invested like two hours in making our, our bus or whatever and then yeah 15 minutes later the carnage was laid bare. there was one game i remember where like literally out of the gate i made a drift maneuver which is like you know when you're just changing lanes basically in this game and you know messed up the dice roll and <laughs> next thing you know my car has rolled and burned and careened off off the board and i was basically out it's one of the many things that could happen in car wars it was yeah. a lot of a lot of fun all right chris what have you got galaxy trucker i have heard of galaxy trucker i have no idea what it's like i just heard it's like it's oddball it is super oddball yeah but i also hear it's really awesome in the game you're basically building a spaceship that you are going to take on a trek past a bunch of planets that you can stop off at and pick up resources and then you know you go along a track and you reach the end and you sell your resources and you get points but the the, the bulk of the gameplay isn't going along that track. It is a timed phase where you and your opponent are reaching into you know, like all of the, the, these tiles that have been laid out uh, in between you along with a, a spaceship mat. You know, that's something you can use these tiles to build a spaceship with. You, you pull out a tile, 
And if you want to put it on your on your mat, you put it down, get another one. Put it down, get another one. You don't want it, you put it back face up so that your opponent can take it. And you're you're trying to build out a ship with uh, you know shields and guns that are going to be able to shoot down pirates or asteroids and uh, you want you want to have like crew quarters and you know special modules and and, and places to store goods to trade it, it is very weird to play because like the oppositional part of it is all right there while you're both pulling in and, and taking things at random you know it's timed yeah. and then after that you know you're just like hey what are you gonna do that's awesome man and, <laughs> and it's just it's a really neat dynamic um I, I it's not like anything i've ever played and and i think that yeah. any family would have fun playing it and it sounds really cool all right so for my final choice i'm going to go with a obscure game called unexploded cow mm-hmm and Unexploded Cow is a fine little game. It was a turn of the millennium kind of game back when Mad Cow Disease was a thing over in England. And so the idea is, hey, <laughs> England's got a problem. It's got mad cows. France has a problem. Lots of unexploded bombs from the war. Why don't you use one to solve the other and get all these doofy cows to walk through France and find the bombs? And <laughs> you're playing these cards of these like different cows and they're dressed up like Tommy's from world war one, but they're all like, you know, just derpy or like big bugged out <laughs> eyes. Cause they're not all there. And then it's like, doo, 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 and you go, you pick a town in France, you send your cow in there. hope you find a bomb. You get paid and then you get paid for each bomb you find. And the point is to kind of get over a certain level. It's, it's just bizarre and goofy and weird. And we really, we really liked it. The interesting thing about it though, is that it was made by a, uh, a company called cheap ass games. And Cheap Ass Games in the late 90s was this game company where they came up with these funky little games. They didn't have the resources to actually produce the physical goods or anything. So they created these games that were basically little leaflets. And they would send it to you like by mail order. And then they're all games that were designed in a way that you could play them with household items. So like for the game marker, you just use buttons or bottle caps or something like that. And the boards would either be paper that folded up in the envelope they sent you or something you could just sort of draw on paper. But it was super stripped down. I really enjoyed Unexploded Cow, but I just enjoy the whole family of games. And, and that actually takes me to my, my final thought for the night. Right now, this really is an amazing time to be playing board games. There are more incredible games being developed now than ever before, from simple party games to super complex affairs for true gaming aficionados. And, you know, Kickstarter plays a crucial role in all of this right now. This project funding platform, despite what you think about it, its largest category is by far games, and some three-quarters of which are board games. And many of these feature really innovative designs and often lavish, even collectible production values. Case in point is in 2020, uh, while the rest of the game industry was recoiling from the market disruptions of the COVID-19 pandemic, designer uh, Isaac Childress launched the Kickstarter for a game called Frosthaven, which is the follow-up to his 2017 dungeon-crawling smash hit Gloomhaven. Within three hours, Frosthaven raised three million bucks, which was six times the five hundred thousand it initially sought. And to date, that Kickstarter has raised nearly thirteen million dollars. Frosthaven is scheduled to deliver sometime in March twenty twenty one. But you know, the thing is, you don't need a mega successful Kickstarter to create your own games. You know, one of my favorite publishers, as I mentioned before, was Cheap Ass Games. They produce these tiny rule leaflets. You provided the pieces and it really worked out well. And I'll say from that inventive well sprung games such as Kill Dr. Lucky. 
I think, you know, when we play games, we inevitably make our own tweaks to the rules or add things the designers never thought of or remove things we don't like. You know, house ruling is as much a part of the gaming experience as the games themselves. And for a lot of gamers, it's only a matter of time before they try their hand at creating their own games. I know Joe had mentioned off mic that he's produced this really cool looking Galactus game that I can't wait to try sometime. I have made my own game, uh, my own board game with my son once when he was seven or eight years old. We used his action figures in a chessboard and we created kind of an analog version of the computer game Archon with combat running like a super simple version of D&D. And this game was a blast, not just because the game itself was fun, but because I got to watch a kind of creativity blossom within my boy that continues to this day. And that was really, that was really neat to see. I think making games ourselves is one of the purest expressions of our love for gaming. And you should give it a try sometime. You might be surprised at what you've got to offer your fellow tile layers, your fellow army builders, your fellow mentats, and your fellow pineapple smashers. Thanks for joining us, everyone. On behalf of myself, Tom, Chris, and Joe, this has been Moments of Truth. We'll see you next time. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. The Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And for hundreds of additional write-ups of my favorite movies, please visit BillCoffin.com.